Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm thrilled to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership original Barcase bassist, James Alexander. For more than 50 years, he has held down the bedrock bottom for one of the greatest funk and R&B bands of all time, and his deep pocket rhythms have set the foundation for dozens of classic songs and 18 top 20 R&B singles. Alexander helped reform the group after most original members perished in the 1967 plane crash that claimed Otis Redding's life. From 1976 onward, the Barquet's funk jams included Shake Your Rump to the Funk, Two Hop to Sop, Let's Have Some Fun, Holy Ghost, I'll Dance, Move Your Boogie Body, Hit and Run, Traffic Jammer, Freak Show on the Dance Floor, Sexomatic, Your Place or Mine, and Certified True. Their mellow cuts included Attitudes, Anticipation, Running in, in and Out of My Life, and You Can't Run Away. 
While forging their own gritty, authentic sound, the Barquet is kept current by mixing in flavors of acts like the Ohio Players, North Wind and Fire, Rick James and Prince. And been a fan for so long, James, I was telling you before we came on, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you? Man, I'm doing great, man. What about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you. Especially all things considered, got to, you know, consider myself blessed. So, Right. That's both of us, man. And you're coming to us from Memphis today, right? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Born and raised. (laughs) Yeah, we're comparing notes on that just a little while ago. Yeah. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of being being through there once or twice and, uh, you know, got to visit Graceland once and, you know, so I I know a little bit about it, but uh, yeah, I I know it's a musical hotbed, that's for sure. Hey, man, please come back, come back and, uh, you know, let me take you around. Yeah, you you know, next time you come here, we'll take you around. We, you know, we'll make you, we'll paint the town. Hey, I'm going to take you up on that. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, Yeah. So um, I want to talk a little history. You certainly have a lot of great history. And, um, you know, what, what drew you to the base in the first place, James, way back? Why the base? Well, I, I actually, you know, I tell people this all the time. I really didn't want to play bass. But what happened is uh, in junior high school, I wanted to be in the band, right? And I wanted to be a drummer. But what happened my mom was on the way to buy me, uh, you know, marching parade, you know, parade drum. And she got pickpocketed. And so I, I didn't end up getting anything, but I still wanted to be in the band. So when I went to the band room and uh, the band director asked uh, the people to stand up and state your name and what you wanted to play. And I told him I wanted to play the drums. And he said, well, you know what? We don't need any more drummers. We need tuba players. I said, tuba, something, you know, I'm taking, thinking about a tuba, you know, tuba, this big awkward, you know, thing, you know, you got to put it on your shoulders, you know, it's a big awkward instrument, you know, right there. He said, well, if you want to be in the band, you know, we need tuba players. We don't need drummers. So I wanted to be in the band so bad. So I took him up on the offer of being a tuba player. I didn't know how, I know you nothing about tuba or anything like that. And so but once I got into the tuba, you know, I got pretty good at it. And then that's when I discovered, uh, found out about the bass guitar. Well, it started off with the upright bass because I transferred from tuba to upright bass. I even made the junior symphony. And then I transferred from upright bass to electric bass. My dad bought me my first electric bass many, many, many years ago. It was a, it was a, uh, he, he he didn't tell me this, but he had put it in the layaway. It was a harmony bass and uh, amp. I think the whole thing cost about maybe a hundred bucks or something like that. And that's how I started out on the electric bass. Uh huh. And, and so, did you have lessons, or you just taught yourself, or how'd that go? Um, actually, I had uh, I had a few lessons, but but what really happened? Uh, what really what really got the ball rolling was there was this little band that used to rehearse all the time and their bass player didn't have a bass. So I would ride my bike over to this rehearsal every Saturday so he could use my bass to rehearse. So this one particular said I rode my bass. I mean, I rode my bicycle over there and uh, we were trying to get the rehearsal started and uh, the bass player wasn't there. So the guys kept saying, 
we're ready to start this rehearsal, but the bass player's not here. And they said, well, who's going to play bass? And they said, you are. But there's one small problem. I can't play bass. I don't know how to play. And so the guitar player said, well, you know, we'll teach you what you need to know. So he taught me, you know, a few little things. I mean, and uh, I have to tell you, I was messing up bad. I was messing up real bad. So the next Saturday, just like I always do, I rode my bike over to the rehearsal again. So this time, this week, the bass player showed up again. So I set my bass up, getting ready to let him use it for rehearsal and everything like that. And uh, when I gave him the bass, the rest of the guys in the group said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just, I'm giving him my bass because, you know, I let him use my bass for rehearsal. They said, no, he's not the bass player anymore. So who's the bass player? He said, you are. I said, no way. I can't play. I don't know. So the guitar player once again said, I'll teach you what you need to know. And that's really how it all started. And that particular group that was rehearsing later ended up being the bar case. Wow. How old were you at that time, James? Oh, I was about 13 or 14, something like that. 13, yeah, 13, almost 14. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, well, that's, uh, I think, supports the the uh, message of, of showing up is half the battle, right? Showing up is half the battle. No questions. No question about that part. Yeah. <laughs> um, so did you feel like you progressed very fast or it sounds like you were just kind of thrown in the deep end and you had no choice, but to really progress. Um, I don't think I progressed that fast. I think I, you know, I think I was a slow learner, but you know, I had, I think everybody always tell me I had a good attitude. So uh, that helped out a lot, but I have to tell you, I wasn't that good. I was kind of really, as they say back here in Memphis, I guess because of the barbecue, I was kind of slow. And in, in, uh, in, in, in musicians' terms, slow means that you're not that good. I mean, actually, you're kind of terrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you faked it pretty good, I guess, long enough until you picked it up. And then. Well, uh, one thing I, that I always heard, and I think I got this from my dad, he said, fake it till you make it. And I faked it. <laughs> I faked it as long as I could. And then, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I started getting better, you know, later on down the line. And who were some of your playing influences? Was it, you know, like your James Jamersons or who else maybe were oh, influences? Probably two of my biggest influences, uh, well, three biggest influences as bass players uh, were Doug Don, uh, James Jameson, of course, and uh, a guy that ended up showing me a lot. Uh, he was, he was, a, he was a, a music instructor. His name was uh, Robert McGee. He was a classically uh, trained musician. He also played the cello and the violin. And so he, he's the one that told me about the upright bass. And then he also played the electric bass too. So that was, it, it was a great, it was great just being around him. Do you remember like one performance or one recording where you felt like, wow, I got this now? No, no. Uh... I figured, well, I, I guess the recording that, that really sticks out in my mind that I say, wow, I got this now is when we recorded Soul Finger. Uh, because 
believe it or not, we didn't know exactly what we were doing. Soul Figure came about uh, this singer by the name of Norman West. He sung in a group called the Soul Church. And I don't know if you heard of them before. Mm-mm. But anyway, what happened is uh, we was playing this little riff behind him in the club one night. So we went to the studio uh, uh, to audition for Jim Stewart. He asked us to play something. Now, mind you, we had already auditioned two other times and been turned down by Steve Cropper, you know, with uh, Booker T and MGs. But, but Jim Stewart asked us to play something. So we started playing this little groove. And he said, what is that? And we said, we don't know. And he said, whatever it is, hold it right there. And that song ended up being Soul Figure. Hmm. Funny how that can work, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it. Uh, I mean, we recorded that song in 30 minutes, and that's the 30 minutes that changed my life. Wow. So um, how would you categorize, James, your, your playing style, you know, as the years progressed, you know, I mean, you're, you're right there in the pocket, but you're not like one of those guys that just really aggressively plucks, you know, how would you describe your style? Uh, I, you know, my upbringing and the way I was taught, I was, I always wanted to be, I always longed to be a, 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 a complete musician. In other words, the bass player, uh, for some concern, it's supposed to stay in the bass player's place. And we're supposed to, you know, provide the bottom, you know, uh, to a lot of guys, especially these younger guys, you know, that's really boring to them. Uh, you know, you, you know, uh, they think more is more, but uh, sometimes less is best. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I really enjoy providing, you, you know, the low end, the bottom. You know, and I just try to keep it real simple. And uh, I was always just taught to just keep it simple and uh, just do what a bass player is supposed to do. And that's, you know, a lot of these, I have the utmost respect for the uh, Larry Grahams, the uh, Marcus Millers and all these guys. B- Boosie Collins, who is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, uh, Lewis Johnson, you know, God rest his soul, deceased now. All these bass players, I mean, James Jameson, I love them. But I also love what I do too. So, you know, and I'm and I'm glad to be able to provide that bottom, you know, that I provided for, you know, a lot of people. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. I don't take it for granted at all. I, I liken you a little more, if I'm correct in this assumption, to players more like, you know, uh, Cool and um, um, Jones from the Ohio Players and uh, you know, these guys that just, you know, you keep an incredible bottom and you are the bedrock of that funk, but you don't have to like go out there and just like be real flashy. Right. Uh, that's, that's the best way to describe it. Uh, somebody like cool or cool in the gang. Um, uh, like you said, the guy, I can't think of his first name, Jones from Ohio. Mar- Marshall, Marshall, Jones. Marshall Jones. Yeah. Uh, God rest his soul. He's deceased as well. But, uh, yeah, I just like to provide that bottom. I mean, we don't, you don't have to be real flashy. Just, uh, just feel good. You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels real mm-hmm. good. Right. Uh, how, how hard was it after, uh, you know, that tragedy in the late sixties to, to reform the band? Uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty difficult at first because man, you, um, all of these guys, we grew up together. So we spent a whole lot of time together, even though, 
you know, we were young and all this stuff like that. We were together just about every day, you know, doing something, you know, uh, with no music, we was doing, you know, we was doing, doing a lot of different things. So we spent a lot of time together, but the accident happened like December of 67. By April of 68, we debuted uh, uh, the new Barcades, you know, uh, re, re up with the Barcades, yeah. And, and uh, Larry Dotson was not yet part of it at that point? No, no, he... no. Larry Dotson didn't come into around uh, 1970. He came in like about two years later, uh, it, you know, because up to that point, we were an instrumental group. And uh, when we brought him in, uh, you know, that's that's the way it was. I mean, you know, he 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 changed the group. He changed the style and uh, he became uh, iconic in his own right. You know what I mean? What, what a lot of people. I'm sorry. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, mimicked and copied his style. Uh, he's a great, great singer and a great stage presence, you know? Right. What, what, was great... your, what, what was your, I'm sorry, James, but what was your first impressions of him when you first encountered Larry? Uh, when I first encountered him, uh, to be quite honest with you, and, I mean, he, he'll kill me for saying this, but I didn't really think that much of him at first. Because you know he, he sung in a doo-wop group called the Temprees, yeah. and he was just—I uh, mean, to be quite honest with you—he was just okay. Um, we helped him transform from being a doo-wop guy to being the, the front man and the, and the leader uh, and the lead singer for the Barcades. Uh, he wasn't there at first. Uh, he was just—he was just an okay guy. But I, I have to say it that. Uh, but the thing about it, the thing that I liked about him, that he was he was willing to learn. He was, you know, like all of us were young back in those days. So he but he had a willing he had a willing spirit. And so, like you said, uh, uh, you know, being there is half of the battle. Also being willing is half of the battle, too. So he definitely had the right attitude, you know. Sounds similar to your base story, you know? Uh, yeah, kinda... no question. Yeah. And, no and question. When, when and how did Alan Jones come into the picture? Well, Alan Jones was a staff writer at Stax Records. And um, before the plane crash, he was just like hanging around and uh, wanting to get involved with the Barcades. But we kept telling them, you know, we, you know, the original Barcades, we just kept telling them we didn't, I mean, for lack of a better word, we didn't really need him. But he just he he was he was so persistent. Uh, he just kept hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. And um, after the plane crash, uh, you know, the only two members were left were myself and Ben Cauley. So Ben Cauley, you know, because he actually was in the plane crash. He was the only surviving person that was you know that was on the plane itself. So he didn't really want to have much to do with. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the reforming of the bar case, anything. He didn't have a problem. He didn't have a problem being in it, but he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to put in the, uh, the, the leg work and all the work that had to go into, you know, putting all the guys together and all that stuff like that. So Alan Jones saw an opportunity and he jumped on it because he, he came to me and say, Hey man, I see what you're trying to do. 
and I'm willing to help you. And you have to understand something. I mean, you know, I was a, you know, 17 year old guy and uh, I didn't, nobody else was around. So he just, that's how he really got in. I mean, I, you know, uh, he came in and uh, he came in at an opportune time, you know, and I said, hey, let's do it. How much older was he about like 10, 15 years older? He wasn't that much older. Yeah, about maybe uh, about 10 years older than us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, he's deceased now. I mean, say he would have been probably uh, pretty close to 80, if not 80, you know. So you guys then uh, reeled off those those Stax albums that were had a, you know, real like kind of edge to them and a rock influence and um, a lot of great stuff on there and you know, when I discovered the group being the age I am was with the Mercury debuts. So Too Hot to Stop is what brought me into the Barquet's world. All and, right. You uh, know, the album that I didn't have no shirt on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got that. Uh, oh, you, got, you, oh, you got it now, huh? Look, well, look, let me just tell you a little funny story about that. Well, it's a little, that, pe- little version right there. Oh, wow. Okay. That's the album that I didn't have a shirt on. But you know what? I've been told if I take my shirt off now, they're going to tell you to please put your shirt back on, okay? <laughs> put your shirt back on, James. <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. It's okay, you know? Hey. Well, hey, you know what? The, hey, the, I'm me- an older guy, and I don't have to apologize about nothing no more. <laughs> the music is timeless. Our physiques, well, you know. Yeah. It is what it is, man. Uh, that's all right. That's perfectly okay. I understand. So were you, uh, disappointed, you know, how did you feel about, you know, the stacks records period and the fact that, you know, none of those records really blew up huge, you know, you kind of had more success at Mercury. How'd you feel about the period before Mercury? Uh, you know, we didn't, I mean, we didn't know what to feel. We just kept hoping that one day we would go in and record a record that, uh, you know, the masses uh, would, uh, you know, get into. Unfortunately, it didn't happen while we were at Stacks, but we didn't, you have to understand. I mean, you know, we, we were living out a dream. I mean, you know, we always dreamed of having a band, of being in a band. So we were enjoying doing that. And we figured if we kept working, something good was going to happen. I mean, uh, you have to understand, we, we went through the whole thing with Stacks closing and all of that stuff like that. Uh, but then we took, a, we took a local club gig when Stacks closed. And then we always had this nursery rhyme that says, the, cl- the club that we performed at was called the Family Affair. And said, and we said, you know, you know Stacks closed in 1975. And we always said that we're going to play at the family affair, but one day we'll be playing at Madison Square. And surely enough, in 1978, I think it was, no, 1979, we performed at Madison Square Garden with George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelic on the Mothership Tour. Wow. You guys must have been like pinching yourselves at that point. Oh, my God. I mean, look, we were so excited until... When George Clinton came on stage, you know, when he, you know, when they, when they, when the mothership landed on the stage at Madison Square Garden, 
we stopped the show and presented him uh, with a gold album, which was our first gold album, um, Flying How on Your Love uh, from the Barcase. That was our first gold album. We presented to him live uh, at Madison Square Garden. Because when we ran up there to stop the show, people were saying, what are they doing? And uh, they, when they saw what we was doing, you know, everybody calmed down a little bit. Wow. That's a, a great, uh, you know, rise to glory story right there. Right. You know, um, do, you, do you remember uh, the process of making Too Hot to Stop, you know, and that transition to Mercury and kind of how, you know, your sound evolved, you, you really made it more uh, funk focused and less, a little less on the rock? Uh, that sound evolved from just us. I mean, you know, we were one of those bands, not for the sake of copying off of people, but we was one of those bands that always listened to a whole lot of music. And, but we weren't listen, listening to music to copy off anybody. We just listened to music just to try to stay up on what's going on in, in, in today's world. And so, uh, that's how it all evolved. And plus, you know, we did a lot of, we had a lot of jam sessions. So a lot of songs and stuff that we do or end up doing came out of those jam sessions as well. Did you expect uh, a track like Shake Your Rump to be a hit like it was? We had no idea. Which, man, you, Shake Your Rump was the first song that we recorded on the Two Out to Stop album. I mean, there were no other songs before Shake Your Rump to the Funk. In fact, Shake Your Rump is what got us the deal with Mercury Records. Uh, they heard the song and they said, uh, Charlie Fash heard the song. He immediately said he wanted to sign the Barcase. He signed us to Mercury Records and then uh, told us that he, they wanted to extend our contract from a single to an album deal were you excited to be on the same labels ohio players at that point and i think uh confunction they had some real good funk acts on the no, label the, uh, the, uh, confunction wasn't on the label at that point we uh after the ohio players we would have one of the first groups to get signed after them and then then came confunction along then cool in the game came along cameo the fatback band and the list goes on and on, you know, because uh, Mercury had the band, the funk bands, mm -hmm. Gap yeah. Band, Gap Band. All those bands came after the Barcades. Well, actually, really, really, it was the Ohio players first, then the Barcades, then everybody else. Yeah, because Too Hot to Stop, I think, it was like 76, uh, I want to say. Yeah, 76, yeah. Um, it was just such a great album. I mean, I like I said at the time, James, I thought that was the first one. So I was like, wow, this is unbelievable for a first record. Uh, I was naive. I've found the other stuff later, but um, every track in that album is really great. And even I think there's a lot of hidden gems on there. Even something like Cozy is really cool. Um, you know, and uh, White House Orgy, the instrumental and just, you know, a lot of great stuff on there. Oh, thank you, man. I'm glad you like it. You know, I kind of like it a little bit myself too. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And and you came back hot and heavy, like you said, that next one was a gold record and you kept, you know, shut the funk up and all these hits just kept coming. And what role did um, 
everyone's not everyone, but you know, who were some of the guys in the band that were instrumental in kind of guiding what we heard? Um, it would be myself, Larry Dawson, of course, uh, Harvey Henderson, Winston Stewart. We were the kind of like the core band members that really kind of, you know, for the most part, collab on just about everything. Alan Jones also played a big part in that. But then you had some people like uh, our keyboardist and, and vocalist Mark Bynum, who added some flavor. I mean, he, he wrote a song called um, uh, uh, Unforgettable Dream, which was probably next to uh, Anticipation, probably is one of our strongest ballads. But, you know, uh, we're noted for funk songs, but people forget about the ballads that we had that like Anticipation, you know, Unforgettable Dream, Running In and Out of My Life, uh, uh, Today Is The Day. You know, so we got, to me, we have just as many uh, ballad uh, hits, I mean, records that came off pretty strong as we did up-tempo songs. So, we, you know, we're grateful for all of that. I mean, cause we couldn't do it without the fans. The fans chose those songs, you know, and one song that we recorded uh, called Attitudes, uh, we, we had no idea that that song was going to catch on. Yeah, they're great. And something about those ballads, they still have like the soul of funk going through, mm -hmm. them, you know, even though they're mellower, at least for me, I still get that feeling, you know, that really deep soul get that feeling. Funk feel. Yeah, yeah. It just kind of embraces you, you know? Right. Yeah. That's great, man. So how would you say that the uh, live show evolved, you know, during that time? The live show evolved, you know, we was one of those bands that always liked to rehearse. So we rehearsed, we rehearsed, and we rehearsed again. We just, I mean, it, it, the live shows came out of just a lot of rehearsing, a lot of changing things around and a lot of rehearsing and a lot of jam sessions. And from the jam sessions, we kind of like put, you know, our shows and stuff together. You know, what will fit where, this will fit here, this will fit there. You know, all of that, a lot of that came from just us jamming, jamming around. Can you share one or two like unforgettable memories aside from the Madison Square Garden one? Maybe something uh, weird happened with the snake or the dry ice or something, I don't know, or some something happened. Oh yeah, we were somewhere in Ohio. And, uh, you know, at first, Back in the you know early days, you know Larry Dawson and I were roommates, and so what happened is, Larry, um, some kind of way the snake got loose in the room, you know he, he had him in this he, he always carried him in this net type ba bag, and the snake got loose in the room, and actually the snake had figured out a way, you know because we stand in like one of these motels back in those days you know like a we call them a roach motel and uh the snake found a little crack and he got up in between the wall so we tried to pull the snake out and we couldn't pull him out so we had to call the fire department and when we called the fire department the fire department came in with axes and all this stuff like that so they're gonna try to just cut the wall down and so they tried to pull the snake out and then before they start taking the axes and stuff they was trying to pull on the snake, but anyway, the snake did something and caused the whole uh, electricity and the whole hotel to go off. The hotel went black. 
So we made the news and all this stuff like that. You know, band in motel uh, with a with a reptile in the in their room causes the the hotel lights to go off. You know, it was all in Jet magazine. You ever heard of Jet magazine? Bro? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Jet magazine. It was all in Jet. It was all in the you know the local papers. We were somewhere in Ohio. I just can't remember the city right now. Any second thoughts on on keeping the snake in the act after that? No, we kept the snake in the act up until you know when Larry left. We told him, you know, asked him to take the snake with him. We we it was, we were going to retire the snake when he retired. Really, was it the same snake the whole time? Oh no, it was different snakes, but we used you know the same name. The, the snake was always called Baby Girl, and uh, you know, you know we couldn't. Um, that's what that's who that's what we call the snake, baby girl. Here you are. Lost you for a moment. Yep. Welcome back. Right. Um, what about in terms of a, a performance? Was there any one that really just stands out that was maybe like a huge crowd or maybe the power went out or who knows what? Well, no, uh, we um, one of some of our strongest performances, believe it or not, we've been here in, in our own hometown in Memphis, Tennessee, because we were one of the few bands that live in Memphis and that we, you know, we could headline shows here, right here in Memphis, Tennessee. So that that's always been a big thing for us. It must've been crazy when you guys first kind of did your first homecoming after hitting success. What was it like doing your first show in your hometown after you guys hit it like that? Right. Well, we, we did an annual thing every year. We don't you know, do like a, a barcase homecoming type show. And it, you know, it, it always, there was a, a venue here in Memphis called the Mid-South Coliseum and it was always sold out. So we always did that. And it, uh, it was great. Mm -hmm. When you were in the studio laying down all those incredible songs uh, that I mentioned in the intro, um, did you come up with the bass parts on your own or how, how were they developed? Uh, a lot of the bass parts I came up with on, on my own, but uh, I have, I must, I must honestly admit, I didn't come up with all of them, but most of them I did. You know what I mean? I mean, some of them, I mean, you know, you know, we, we kind of uh, were wide open. Uh, some of them, I just, uh, you know, uh, I didn't come up with the bass line. Oh, I came up with a baseline and they didn't like it. So they changed it. So I said, okay. And then uh, as it turned out, they had the better idea for a bass part anyway. Were you always happy with the final mixes or were you ever like, wait, hey, wait, the bass is down too low in the mix? Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, I want the bass up loud. You know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm a little vain when it comes to that. I wanted the bass up loud, but it, it always worked out. I mean, we, we fortunately we had some great engineers and they always uh put everything where it's supposed to be one wild thing that happened for those of us that were fans in the late 70s was you know you guys had hit it big you had two or three mercury albums out and then out of nowhere i heard this song on the radio that was just incredible and i was like what album is that on what how did i miss that and of course it was holy ghost and mm -hmm. you know stacks had reached back and put out that record that you guys had not had out previously um what happened with that i mean when was that actually recorded 
Oh, that was recorded. I, I can't exactly remember, but it, it was recorded. It, it had to be recorded like it was recorded like probably 74, 73, 74, somewhere in that area. It was just something that we was working on because we we had about four or five or six different versions of Holy Ghost. And if you listen to the album um, called Money Talks, mm -hmm. there's two or three different versions on that uh, on that album of Holy Ghost. But there's even more. There's maybe four or five versions that you didn't even hear. Actually, I still have my original 12-inch uh, from 1978 right there. Oh, wow. <laughs> How about that? Now, what city are you in? You say you're in Charlotte, North Carolina? I am now, but I was in Los Angeles at that time, and I was a, um, a club and, and mobile disc jockey for many years, and so I was always playing great records like Holy Ghost. Oh, and, how about uh, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I see a guitar in the background. Oh, you play guitar as well? I dabble. <laughs> and keyboards too, huh? I dabble. Anything music, you know? It's just... Right. Yeah, music and sports. There's some sports stuff back there too. Yeah, I see you got a Lakers uh, uh, hat on. Yeah. So, you know, you know, we got the Grizzlies down here, and I think the Lakers just beat the Grizzlies a couple of nights ago. I'm not too happy about that. Yeah, well, the season just started. Right. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I said. Yeah. Um, so Holy ghost though. Um, I actually just did uh, James, a uh, radio show where I picked my top funk tracks of all time mm -hmm. and uh, Holy ghost is in my top 20. So yeah. It was. Yeah, oh, yeah. wow. How great is that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised that that became a hit like it did? Uh, and how'd you feel? Did you, were you like, hey, what are they doing? Or were you glad about it? Uh, you know, we, we were kind of upset at first because, you know, we had a uh, we had a record that was uh, a hit on Mercury at the time called Shine. And, you know, that's the first time that I can really honestly say that we had two top 10 records at the same time. And so that just made our, that made our stock go up. Do you think that uh, Holy Ghost would have been that successful had you guys not hit it big on Mercury at that point? I think Holy Ghost would have been a uh, it would have been successful in its own right. Uh, I mean, that's just a hell of a. I mean, you know, it's just. I mean, what they did to it, uh, they you know, because we had mixed it, they added a few little minor things on there, and it just brought the song out even more. And so you guys gave in and started doing on your shows, I'm sure, right? Oh, of course. And now, there's, uh, I mean, a lot of places we can't, the two songs that we can't leave without doing, one is Anticipation, the other one is Holy Ghost. We have to, we must do those two songs, whatever show we do. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Those are both stone classics for sure. Right. Uh, um, it'd be hard. You'd be hard pressed to do all of your great songs in the show. You know, you got so many. Man, I mean, you know, we have to do most of them. I mean, you know, most of the time, uh, most concerts, we, we, we average playing about an hour. But we I mean, but we could play an hour and a half or two hours easy and still not cover all the songs. Exactly. And, and that's and I think and, I, and I'm grateful for this. That is a welcomed problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, you mentioned P Funk. 
uh, James, who, who else um, from back in the day when you're doing those funk fests in the in the 70s, maybe into early 80s, really impressed you as a band, another band? Um, I was really impressed with Confunction. I mean, to, co probably Confunction and Lakeside are probably two of my favorite bands. And we still actually, Confunction and Lakeside, we both still remain friends today. We're still a good, you know, good friends today. Uh, we stay in touch with each other. In fact, I was just telling, um, I was just telling uh, my my people, you know, my you know my people, uh, my crew that we work together that we're gonna try to get a, a kind of like a holiday show with either the Barcades and Confunction or the Barcades and Lakeside here in Memphis, Tennessee. We're gonna try to get that done before the end of the year is out. That's fantastic. And it's so great, too, that both of those bands are still added and going, too, just like the Barquets. Right. But, you know, according to them, they say we inspired them a lot. I mean, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, too. I, I know we had a lot of influence on Confunction, on Lakeside, on Zap, on Switch, on the Daz Band, you know, and the list goes on. But, but you know, we, you know, we, have you heard of a group called Pleasure? Oh yeah, Glide, all time great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we had a big influence on them as well. So, you know, we we're grateful for all of that. Well, you'll be happy to know Pleasure actually does the theme song for my show, Truth and Rhythm. They do. Yeah. Oh, how about that? Yeah, Michael Hepburn and uh, Nate Phillips. Yeah. How about that, man? Yeah, yeah. So it's in the family. Um, how do you think, uh, or what is it about the Barcades, do you think, that helped keep you guys in the mix and relevant for so long? Because especially when it went into the 80s, you know, so many funk bands kind of like fell by the wayside and they stopped having horn sections and the sounds changed. But the Barcades kept coming up and coming up with song, uh, solid records through most of the 80s, for sure. Well, you know, I think one of the things that kept us going is you know, we don't really take ourselves so serious. And um, I know I like to always keep a lot of young people around me. So, you know, that helps me out a lot. So, uh, you know, that that helps out a lot. And then, plus I'm always listening. I'm always listening to what's, what's current, what's, you know, what the trends are and all that kind of stuff like that. And so all of that really helps me out tremendously. You know, you guys really evolved when the synth sound came in to the funk. You know, you guys right. adapted right to it and kept going. Yeah. Well, we, we always try to figure out a way to keep it going, man. You know, uh, not only do we like to, you know, play music, uh, we, I mean, actually, I have to say that I like what music can bring. I mean, when I, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, mu music has is uh, we have used music to bring people together and uh it is is it has brought great joy to a, a lot of families and everything like that yeah there's sort of a delicate balancing act james i think between uh, taking in uh influences and trends and incorporating that into what you're doing and still uh maintaining your own like identity mm-hmm how do you think the Barquets, you know, managed that to, to keep, you know, being the Barquets, but yet still have those influences? Uh, 
Well, you know, uh, we just, I mean, hey, man, we just do it. I mean, it's not, we don't have a particular formula, but it's just like, I, I give you an example of something. We could play a song by Earth, Wind & Fire. Just say, just pick a song by Earth, Wind & Fire. But when we get through with the song, it won't sound like Earth, Wind & Fire. It'll sound like the Barcades, if that makes any sense to you. And, and it's just, it's probably just the way that we play. You know, I, I can't explain it really. Uh, I can't put it into words, what I'm trying to say. But we just have always managed to play a certain way. And so uh, it just comes out that way. You know, th that, that has always been our thing. You know what I mean? Does yeah. that make any sense to you? Yeah, no, it's just another aspect that makes the group unique, I think. Yeah. You know? I um, mean, but everything we play, no matter what is up-tempo or slow or whatever, it always has it always has a feeling to it. It's always kind of soulful. You know what I mean? Definitely. And that's just been just like one of the things that we, you know, that we do. What might be three of your favorite Barquet's bass lines? Oh, believe it or not, Posey would be one of them. You familiar with that one? Uh, Spellbound. Mm. First album. And uh, Move Your Boogie Body. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have to tell you that Move Your Boogie Body uh, was inspired by, it was inspired a lot by Parliament. But it's not Parliament, it's, it's the bar case, but you know, it, it was, uh, that's where the inspiration came from. Like uh, Flashlight or what track, any track in particular? Uh, Maybe One Nation Under a Groove, maybe. Yeah, it's right around there. That was 78, I think. Move Your Boogie Body, maybe it was 78 or 9. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're, yeah. Because, we, you know, we would always listen to all those records. And, I mean, I, we would listen to those records. I can remember my son, you know, we, we sitting up listening to those records over and over and over and over again. And then sometimes... What we used to always do, we used to take a hit record and just play it uh, verbatim, you know, just like uh, just like the record is. But then, but the longer we play it, we play away from the record. And the next thing you know, we got something that's original. Hmm. If that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. Where did you do most of this jamming? Was there a particular rehearsal hall? Um, no, a lot of it was done directly in the studio at Arden Recording Studios in Memphis. That's where we recorded the bulk of all of our music. We, we recorded it at Arden Music. Yeah. At uh, Arden Recording Studios. It's not, I said Arden Music, but it was at Arden Recording Studios. Were, were you always happy with the direction and results, or did you have any uh, sort of creative? differences oh yeah we had creative differences all the time i mean you know it's just uh it's just a difference of opinion but you know we always were able to work that out and what's something about larry that most people maybe wouldn't know or wouldn't guess uh that he and i stayed into it all the time 
because we, we stayed into it. I mean, we were just like uh, two old guys, you know, just like uh, just two grumpy old men. You know, we just, I mean, we always have, like, we have differences of opinions, you know what I mean? But, you know, we always came together at, in the end, you know what I mean? So that's that's a beautiful thing. Were you surprised that he uh, did the retirement uh, tour and, and stopped uh, you know, playing with the band? Uh, yeah, I was surprised, but I knew about it way before anybody else. And, uh, you know, I didn't like beg him to stay or anything like that. And I told him, I just wished him the best, you know what I mean? Uh, but I must say that I thought he was going to retire. Uh, he didn't retire. He came back now as a, uh, as a solo artist. And that's fine too. We we are um, we support that as well. Yeah. Do you razz him about that at all? Like, uh, hey, I thought you were retired. <laughs> no, man. You know, you know, just you know, friendly, it, friendly. You know. No, not even friendly. Not it is what it is. But I just what I did let him know. This is now he's he's in the game. It's gonna be competition. Yeah, I don't know if he's gonna be doing any funk though. That remains to be seen. Right. You know, we'll see. Time will tell. James, what would be your top five albums by other people of all time? If you could only have five to groove to listen to. Uh, probably one of my favorite, uh, believe it or not. I can't think of the album. It's the, one of them is by James Cleveland. Uh, uh, it was the album that he had. Uh, you're the, uh, Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, uh, then it uh, will be Earth, Wind, and Fire. I can't think. Uh, it's the one with uh, uh, Can't Hide Love and all of Gra that. All Gratitude. That. Gratitude, yes. Yeah. Uh, in which they just re redid, it, uh, redid a, a version of uh, Can't Hide Love. It's out right now. And then another one would be, uh, believe it or not, Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. That's one of my all-time favorite. I love that album. And then we'll go to, uh, you know, when Jimi Hendrix and uh, Buddy Miles did the live thing, the live album. I like Bandit that one too. Gypsies. Yeah. And then uh, another one would be, I got two more, right? One more, I think. Yeah, you had uh, James Cleveland, Earth, Wind & Fire, Jimi Hendrix twice, and now one more. Um, uh, Led Zeppelin, the one with a uh, lot of love on it, that album. Yeah, I think it might be their second one. Okay, Led Zeppelin, that thing. I mean, that album was Led Zeppelin. I went to, I saw them one time at the at the um, Fillmore Fillmore West. They were so loud, but they were so good. It was just like I was just, I was just like. Uh, I was like losing it. I mean, because I'd never heard a band play that loud and be that good. And if I had a sixth one, can I have one more? Sure. Slide the Family Stone. Uh, that, I mean, just anything that Slide and the Family Stone did back in those days. Because uh, Larry Graham also ended up being a personal friend of mine. Slide, you know, he was kind of, he was okay, but... Uh, uh, you know, Larry Graham, I mean, it's one of my favorite, all-time favorite as well. Yeah. And as it turned out, he, he, you know, 
Larry Graham liked the way I play. I liked the way he played. You know, he's a more of a thumper and a plucker. And I just play straight bass. And so they said, oh, man, you know, because I, I was thinking that straight bass was just, you know, you know, boring and all this stuff. And they said, man, we like what you do. And I said, oh, yay. <laughs> wow, that's high praise right there. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it is about bass players that seem to, you know, just kind of have this great longevity and hang around because, you know, we've lost a lot of great ones, you know, the rest of their souls. But when you look at the bass players, you know, you and Cool and Bootsy and uh, Larry Graham and so many of the funk bass players still seem to be with us. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you forgot Verdine White. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but we lost Maurice White, but Verdine's still around. Uh, but another one of my favorites I forgot to say was would be uh, Robert Wilson, the Gap mm. Band. Yeah, well, there's one we lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad bass player. Uh, I, I think it's great, man. And I think in most of, most of these guys that we talked about, they still playing. They still active. Yeah. What mm -hmm. what does what does funk mean to you, James? Funk means the world to me. Funk is just like uh, you know, waking up without brushing your teeth. That's funk. <laughs> no, I was just to be a little more serious about it. Uh, just this funk is just something that you can feel. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like music with a feeling. It makes you move. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be R and B. I mean, you know, it could be gospel funk. It could just be all. I mean, you know, all types of funk. You know what I mean? It just means it just means that you're gonna hear something that you can feel. And that's what I think funk is. It's music with a feeling. Oh yeah. Did 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 it challenge you uh, moving sort of from R and B rock to that deeper funk when you made that transition? No, it kind of happened naturally. You, you know, I think to me, if something is a challenge, if it becomes too much of a challenge to you, you 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 might need to just pass on it. You know what I mean? I like to do things just naturally, just let let it flow naturally. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's part of what funk is too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. James, uh, what what can we uh, look for in the near and, and longer term future? What are you up to? Where are you going to be up to? Well, uh, everybody's pushing me to finish my book. Uh, I have a working title called Soul Finger, which is my first record. Uh, and then in 2022, the Barcades will be touring. And then we will have a new album out. Uh, Basically, uh, the Barcades Reloaded, Volume 1. And uh, this is a whole new, young, energetic Barcades. I might be the only, the only senior citizen in the group, but they are funky, funky, funky. You have to keep them in line, right? No, they keep me in line. <laughs> is there any hip-hop on there or just uh, R&B and funk? Uh, we, we, we had just, just a tad bit, you know, just because of the times. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to kind of like incorporate that in. But you know, hip hop has its place. Anyway, it has its place in music, and you know, a lot of people try to just, you know, underrate it or whatever. But you know, hip hop is here to stay as well. James, man, thank you so much for sharing all the stories. It's been so great, and thank you so much for all the music that has meant so much to all of us all these years. 
Right. Then I'm going to ask Renisha. I want to know, know more about you too. And I want to, you know, call you sometime. Okay. Oh, for sure. Anytime, man. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote that. Yeah. I, I call you and uh, I call you and pick your brain and I'll uh, let you be a, a springboard, uh, a sounding board. You know, some of the new music that we're coming out with, you know, to see what you think about it. Oh, we have a song. I We got one song that Renisha and I was just talking about that you probably love. It's called uh, What I'm Feeling. You would love that. It's kind of like uh, the Barcades meet Lenny Williams meet, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, can you imagine something like that? Yeah, Lenny Williams was on the show at, uh, very recently. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the Barcades meet, meet, meet Lenny Williams uh, in a song. It's kind of like a little of uh, LTD. I don't know. It's, it's just like, uh, I think the women are just going to go crazy when they hear that song. Yeah, well, now you got me all, you know, Got y'all worked up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, how about it? <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wolfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.